After these events, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham answered, I'm here. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as an entirely burnt offering there on the mountains that I will show you. Abraham got up early in the morning, harnessed his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. Together with his son, Isaac, he split the wood for the entirely burnt offering, set out, and went to the place God had described to him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place at a distance. Abraham, Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will walk up there, worship, and then come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the entirely burned offering and laid it on his son Isaac. He took the fire and the knife in his hand, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. Abraham said, I'm here, my son. Isaac said, here is the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the entirely burned offering? Abraham said, the lamb for the entirely burned offering, God will see to it, my son. The two of them walked on together. They arrived at the place God had described to him. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He tied up his son Isaac and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. But the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham said, I'm here. The messenger said, don't stretch out your hand against the young man and don't do anything to him. I now know that you revere God and didn't hold back your son, your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a single ram caught by its horn in the dense underbrush. Abraham went over, took the ram, and offered it as an entirely burned offering instead of his son. Abraham named that place the Lord Sees. That is the reason people today say, on this mountain, the Lord is seen. The Lord's messenger called out to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I give my word as the Lord that because you did this and didn't hold back your son, your only son, I will bless you richly and will give you countless descendants, as many as the stars in, in the sky and as the grains of sand on the seashore. They will conquer their enemies, cities. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because of your descendants, because you obeyed me. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks, Gary. So last week, we considered God's calling of a vulnerable people for the sake of the world through this story known as the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. Dramatically, God has chosen Abraham and Sarah to parent with God, the Heavenly Father, to parent the world into healing and redemption. One scholar says it is through Abraham and his family that God will bless the entire world. Shimmering like a mirage in the deserts through which Abraham wandered was the vision of a new world 
a rescued world, a world blessed by the creator once more, a world of justice where God and God's people would live in harmony, where human relationships would flourish, where beauty would triumph over ugliness. However beautiful this plan was set up to be, it became entirely vulnerable, threatened to fail completely on the mountain called Moriah in this story. This child of promise, Abraham's only son, the son he loved, Isaac, was to be sacrificed. This was the end. The end out of which an impossible and unforeseen new beginning had to go through. Not around or over, but exactly through this end. Fleming Rutledge points out kind of the symmetry in God's words to Abraham. So God first comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, if you flip back a little on your Bibles, and then once again here in Genesis 22. Initially, the, the call to Abraham was, leave your country, your people, in your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. And then in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the mountain I will tell you about. She says, in chapter 12, Abraham is asked to cut himself off from the past, his father's house, everything he knew. In chapter 22, he's asked to cut himself off from the future, the future that God was going to make. So now Abraham is in no man's land with God. This vulnerable place where God will see to it. God will provide. We can see in our story also the, vulnerab the vulnerability of each character. Um, Matt, I think there's a slide. This is a woodcut from an artist named Margaret a Adams Parker, known as Peggy Parker. And I think this is so wonderful because you can see in, in each of the characters uh, some, some form of vulnerability. From the top down, you see this divine vulnerability represented by the angel in our story, too. Um, the, the call to Abraham is, Abraham, take your son, your only son, which we don't really get the, the shade of, of that ask. It, it can sound maybe too much like a demand for us, but it's this, this, kind of, this kind of particle of supplication, if you know Hebrew, which is a really shifty and, and subtle language. And, and so it means something more like, Abraham, please take your son, your only son. It's this, it's this plead for this hardest ask that God could make. Ellen Davis said, God, in fathomless power, the one who created heaven and earth, starting from nothing or worse than nothing, now pleads with a human being whom God already knows to be fallible to restore God's shattered faith in creation. So God is vulnerable in this, and you might even say this normal picture of God who transcends with all these omnis, omnipresence, omni, omnipotent, um, this all-powerful, all-knowing God um, shows God's transcendence maybe from the bottom up in a place of vulnerability. 
if, if you go down a little bit more, you see Abraham, this old man. And speaking of being in no man's land with God, I think Abraham's vulnerability is expressed well by a Jewish writer, Eliezer uh, Bergowitz, who wrote a, a book about um, how himself a survivor of Nazi Holocaust, um, how Jews um, continued to worship, continued to celebrate Sabbath, even in Nazi labor camps, even headed towards death. You, you would think these would be the very places where you would forsake God or at least put your mind uh, and your faith elsewhere. And he, he writes this, this, this wonderfully moving account of how it's in this very place, the title of the book is With God in Hell, No Man's Land with God. And he says, uh, he, he puts these words in Abraham's mouth. He says, in this situation, I do not understand you addressing God. Your behavior violates our covenant. Still, I trust you. Because it is you, because it is you and me, because it is us. Almighty God, what you are asking of me is terrible. I do not understand you. You contradict yourself, but I have known you, my God. You have loved me, and I love you. My God, you are breaking your word to me. What is one to think of you? Yet I trust you. I trust you. You see the, the intimacy and the vulnerability between Abraham and God, with God in hell. God and Abraham are friends. God and Abraham are intimates, and only intimates can question so fiercely each other because they're bound by uh, covenant, by, by ultimately love. And then, of course, it's not hard to see Isaac's vulnerability curled up in a fetal position we don't even see Isaac's face because Isaac is the face of so many vulnerable people, children, men, women. And Isaac's vulnerability is a vulnerability brought upon him by his father's faithfulness. Doesn't that happen a lot? Parents' choices make kids vulnerable. Maybe even if you're on the right track, it makes your kids more vulnerable. Think about missionaries who go to raise their kids in places without education or, or good medicine. Think about moving a job and taking your kid out of school. Think about any sort of sacrifice or suffering that you take on that, that automatically uh, drafts your child into it. And, and this is not just children, this is also friendships and partnerships. The, our story is, is maybe purposefully ambiguous about Isaac's age and the, the word boy or young man, it could be anything from a, a small child, which has its own sort of sadness to see Isaac traveling three days with his dad, carrying wood and fire, asking all those questions that little kids ask. Dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? When, when are we going to be there? It's so awful and ironic. Or maybe he's a young man, like we could picture. Remember in our story, Abraham is old. Abraham's in his 80s when God comes to him. Let alone at this event, Abraham's probably around 100. You can imagine Isaac being 18, 25, and could easily overpower 
his elderly dad. That, that might make it even more heartbreaking. That this Isaac is vulnerable in a place of, of kind of purposed and, and willing vulnerability. We see in our picture these characters start to relate to each other. Our narrative says Isaac's hand is outstretched. And I think when, when I read that, I tend to think it, it's, it's got a trembling knife in it, ready to fulfill this awful mandate. But Peggy Parker imagines that it's an empty hand outstretched, maybe even soothing a child, maybe even mirroring the divine hands outstretched to hold Abraham. The angel protects Abraham as Abraham protects the boy. God is ultimately apparent in this picture, in this family portrait. And despite all the, the, the horror of this scene, and again, I, I take that seriously. Everyone I talk to about this cringes when I first mention this passage. Despite the horror of the scene, God is ultimately apparent and can be trusted with children. I think this, when, when we, we move from community to, to the part of God's story that brings forth the cross, which none of these are hermetically sealed. They're all kind of interrelated, and they've all kind of been there the whole time. I, I think the idea that God is ultimately a parent and can be trusted with God's children is lost on many people who talk about the cross in terms of atonement theories and try to configure some way that the, the father was pleased with the son's death. This is, this is like a patent lie. The father is heartbroken by the death of his son. And it's... It's a, the same heartbrokenness that was extended towards all of creation, the moment of that sin and death infiltrated God's very good creation. It's, it's maybe even, it's all of that, but maybe even concentrated into a single point. And when we look at this family portrait, I also see Jesus. Jesus' vulnerability present in each of these characters. With God, Jesus becomes this vulnerable promise. After all, God, Jesus has been part of this divine community from the beginning, from before the beginning. With Abraham, Jesus becomes the people of the promise, the person par excellence. And with Isaac, Jesus becomes the sacrifice. And through all these becomings, Jesus becomes the provision, the ram, the salvation, the life beyond the mountain, the journey down. We talked last week about Jesus' vulnerable people, or God's vulnerable people. This week in Jesus, in the cross, we see a Jesus who is God's vulnerable person who reconfigures and gathers all of God's vulnerable people. So God continues God's plan to call and send a people by sending a person. A person who might sum up all of God's hopes for humanity, who might recapture what it means to be the image of God. Matt, there's a slide from a few weeks back. The image of God, this initial Imago Dei. A person who might fulfill Israel's calling. Israel is that 
imager of God to be a blessing to many. And in Jesus, we see in full relief what this looks like. Calling and feasting with the lost, the least, the last, the littlest, and the closest to death. The person who gathers creation's praise and represents it back to God, also gathers humanity's pain and offers it back to God. Also one who acts as a bridge, a priest, a high priest, a great high priest who presents God to us, divinity in a, in a container that we can understand. Jesus felt all the things, was pressed on upon by all the things that we feel and are pressed on upon by, yet was without sin. There's, there's all these other things that Jesus gathers up and kind of uh, re-symbolizes. So when, when you, or uh, fulfills the things that were symbolized. So when you read your Old Testament and you're reading about the temple, God sends Jesus to be a person who might reconsider even what the temple is. That's why Jesus points to his own body and says, this temple will be torn down and in three days it will rise again. It will be rebuilt. He reconfigures what it, what it means for God's holy presence to move into strange places and dark corners. After all, that's what the temple was for. It's a place for, where humanity meets God. It's, it, when, we, when we hear the, the words of the prophets, we, we then come to see Jesus and to hear from Jesus that God would send a person who would embody the mission of the prophets, boldly correcting, bringing people's hearts back to God and imagining God's peaceable future even in the midst of a place of exile or faithlessness or despair. And the cross is the center point for all of this. All of this, this new um, growth in this, this birth out of death. This is where it all comes to a head. And the cross is a risky, vulnerable strategy, isn't it? You see, dealing with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has always been a risky strategy <laughs> for humanity. God to hum humanity and humanity back to God. It's been risky that a, a future and inheritance started with a barren, empty, aged womb. It was risky that an encounter, uh, uh, Jacob's encounter, left him with a lifelong limp. It was risky that Abraham and Isaac and many of God's people after that would, would then be given new names, new homes. They trade exile for exodus. These are all risky things, and repeatedly God's people tend to turn back even when they're delivered and say, wasn't it better before when we were enslaved because at least we knew where we were and who we were? This new life is risky. All of these things that we've been given, all these new places we've been put are good things, good places, but they're, they don't come before the risk of complete and total desolation, despair, and hopelessness, of disorientation. T.S. Eliot uh, instructs us to wait without faith, hope, and love. We're so, we're so used to clinging to those promises of faith, hope, and love, and the, the thing that's going to remain is love. It says, wait without faith, hope, and love 
because they're all truly found in the waiting, and that's what the cross shows us. That there's no more cosmic, no more concrete, flesh and blood, literally flesh and blood way for God to enter into the world and into our lives than Jesus' death on the cross for our sake. That Jesus entered into the deepest darkness, the most hopeless despair, the, the deadest death. So if we don't say the creeds much, but in the creeds there's this, this strange part that even some churches exclude because they don't know how to deal with this, is that Jesus descended to the dead. <laughs> the deadest death. In order to disturb, in order to destroy the logic of sin and death. I think that's the scary good news of Good Friday. TSLA also um, talks about that's, that's why we call Friday good. That's the scary good news of the cross of Christ. That we come to Jesus and we lay down our lives. And we don't really know what we're going to pick up. <laughs> we lay it down, and, and that's, again, the language in our Genesis 22 story of a completely burned offering. Abraham laid his son down for a completely burnt offering, not knowing if there would be anything to pick back up. It's precisely at this point of darkness and despair that Christ died on the cross and created a possibility for new life of light and hope. The cross, where God's son, the only son, whom God loves, is laid on wood. The cross strips us bare and hands us back our faith, which is rarely much better or stronger than like Peter's faith in a faithful God, in a faithful Christ who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We lay down our hope, and the cross strips us bare and hands us back our hope in and from the God who the God of hope who fills you all, us all, with joy and peace and faith so we might overflow in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We lay down our love, and the cross strips us bare and hands us back our love, transformed by God demonstrating his own love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's our good news that our security is only found in this radical insecurity of a naked, shameful, afraid, and alone death of Christ for our sake and in our place. Another poet, a more recent poet, uh, who's still alive but is a, himself a sufferer of uh, incurable blood disease, a guy named Christian Wyman at Yale, he refers to the God, he struggles with many of us in the sort of God who would send his son to the cross. He refers to this God whom he's wrestled hard with and against as his bright abyss. I think that's beautiful language for this. His bright abyss. At the cross, we're both challenged and we're gifted. We're challenged to lay down what burdens us 
what darn near threatens to crush us and to commit into our Father's hands, we're challenged by the idea that the cross takes all of us. Every scrap of faith we can muster, a childlike trust that Jesus possesses as he looks to his Father and hands himself over. We're challenged to head straight towards sacrifice. I think that's, that's, the, the, that's the one kind of symmetry in all this in the sacrifice. We talked about sin's corruption and, and much of the activity and much of the posture of sin is to, is to do something and try, and try desperately to avoid the consequences. So we cast those consequences on others, on those most vulnerable. But sacrifice and the cross makes us head straight into, headlong into how costly and dreadful, how much this requires of us. And the good news is that Jesus did that for us. This is, this is the exact opposite of the posture and impulse of sin, which, which tries to cast these, these consequences on, on someone else. This is like a severe moment of honesty for us. So we're challenged with all these things, but we're, we're really gifted too. We're gifted with the relief that God is faithful to take these things from us. That God is, is going to take our hurt and hand it back to us with healing. And, and, it, and it's, not, it's not, this hurt is not made completely new. God doesn't crumble it up and throw it into the bin and present us new lives. Our, our healing might have scars and scar tissue and these things that we once um, knew as disabilities, which then proved to be assets and also marks of God's faithfulness. These are the, hand, these are the scars on Jesus' hands, feet, and side. That God's going to take our fear and hand back to us peace. God's going to take our sin and hand us back freedom. God's going to take our loneliness and hand us back God's very presence. God's going to take our death and hand us back not just life, but Jesus' life. Jesus' eternal, resurrected, abundant, overflowing life. That starts now. When the Bible talks about eternal life, the eternal part starts back here and not way up there. And we get this because Jesus passed through the worst and darkest and most lost and cannot any longer be lost. Jesus hands us back a life that we can join in with the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit. In Wyman's words, my God, my bright abyss, into which all my longing will not go, once more I come to the edge of all I know, in believing nothing, believe in this. We hand over our belief to despair even in the cross, and we're given back a belief in a God who delivers and a God who sees to it. The cross on Calvary's mountain beckons in us a faith like Abraham's. When Abraham shows up in the New Testament, it's always talking about Abraham's faith faith that was reckoned to him as righteousness. We're, we're given this, this faith which we can't see and doesn't know anything but God's fidelity, God's faithfulness. 
with Jesus who prayed and sweated blood in the garden, we're brought to the edge of what we know, this bright abyss of what God is doing in and through Christ and in and through us. So it's through this vulnerable person, this Jesus, that we, God's vulnerable people, are restored, are made at one with God once again. And this restored image, we, we saw in corruption how, how our image of God, the ways we show God forth in the world is, is cracked, this icon. Think of like a cracked mirror, you know, misfiring all of this reflection. But Jesus' death on the cross then becomes a paradigm for faithfulness in this world, and God's people then become a cross-shaped people. And you see those cracks are put back together and repaired, but not in, a, not in an old way, but in something completely altogether new. We're restored images of God being pieced back together to bear God's righteousness in the world and to gather creation's praise and pain and present it back to God. Jesus on the cross has definitively and riskily done this. It is finished. When we come to the cross, when we cling to the cross, when we sing and pray things like, Jesus, keep me near the cross, we lay down our plans and power and our, and our ideas about how the world works. And like Abraham, we abandon our past and our future to the vulnerable God who is present and includes us in the vulnerable life of the Son who continues to gather across shaped people. If anything, Jesus on the cross is him putting his body in a place to experience his vulnerability. We talked about this in our Mustard Seed group on Thursday. We're reading Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove's book um, on reconstructing the gospel. And, and we spoke in our group about how we experience change. Uh, obviously, um, when we come and we, we pray and we um, even repent, we, we expect and we want transformation and change. But the thing is, few of us know how that works. Uh, when we witness to our, our neighbors and friends and, and try to call them into this life with God, we, we want and we expect change for them, but we forget how it works. And so we, we're talking in our our group about a time in our lives when we've experienced transformation or change. And several people um, kind of told stories with a similar uh, arc to them, is that this change happens when you put your body into a place where you're vulnerable and it might not work. You don't know what you're doing and you don't know how it's going to end up. Uh, for one person, this happened when they volunteered as a teenager in a low-income neighborhood and, and were around people that they've never been around before. And over time, maybe even, maybe even at that moment, but maybe over time unknown to them, they became the sort of person with a heart bent towards people who are hurting, people who are not like them. And that, that happened because she put her body in a place of vulnerability. And that way, we join in, we don't add to Jesus' cross, but we join in his cross-shaped life by putting our bodies in places of vulnerability so we might experience change and carry that healing and change and transformation into this world. 
Abraham, like God, received his son back from the dead. This is our segue towards next week. Hebrews 11 says, again, by faith. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac when he was tested. The one who received the promises was offering his only son. He had been told concerning him, your descendants will come from Isaac. He figured that God could even raise him from the dead. So in a way, he did receive him back from the dead. Deeply configured into the dark logic of the faithfulness that leads to the cross is a faith that might lead to a surprising resurrection. To hope in the possibility for lasting new and eternal life. To new creation. To the reversal healing like the reversal that heals the corruption of sin and death and defeats it, unravels it, and bursts forth new creation right in the midst of the old. That's where we're headed next week. That's where the story is going. That's where the cross takes us. Will you guys pray with me? Father, in those... Uh, words that we sang from Fanny Crosby, uh, keep us near the cross. Um, It's there that we find hope, healing, and hospitality. Hope for a world repaired, a world that has been repaired even as it's being repaired, and we trust in that. Healing, it's It's in that place of sorrow and despair, of wounding, that we are healed. It's by those stripes that we are healed. In hospitality, the very place of exclusion outside of the city's gates is a place that you've brought us in and included us in God's life. How we thank you for the cross. Keep us near the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.